Good evening, everyone, and welcome to the New York Historical Society. I'm Dale Gregory, Vice President for Public Programs, and we welcome you to our spectacular Robert H. Smith Auditorium. To find out more about our wonderful exhibitions, currently Silicon City Computer History Made in New York and the Art and Whimsy of Mo Willems, and all our upcoming programs for the year, please pick up a brochure on your way out. And if you don't already have one and consider becoming a member, I always like to ask how many members do we have with us in the audience today? So it is almost everyone. We thank you so much for your support. And those of you who are new, we welcome you and do hope you will become members as well. Tonight's program, Democracy, Elections, and the Vote, is part of the Bonnie and Richard Reese Lecture Series in Constitutional History and Law. And I'd like to express our gratitude to Rick and Bonnie Reese for their support in creating this series and their great generosity on behalf of this institution. Rick also contributes greatly to New York Historical as the vice chair of our board of trustees. So thank you so much, Rick Reese and Bonnie, who's not with us right now. I'd also like to recognize and thank a very special trustee, Roger Hertog, our former chairman of the board, currently the executive committee chair, for all his generosity and his inspiring role as a leader in building this institution. Roger, thank you so much. And we expected Susan Danilo, we'll just thank her, although she may not be here yet, for all her great work as well, and all the Chairman's Council members with us tonight. Thank you so much. The program will last an hour and include a question and answer session. There'll be a formal book signing tonight with Akil Ritamar following the program, so please Stay for that, you'll be able to purchase copies of its books in our museum store. We are so pleased to welcome Akil Ritamar, Sterling Professor of Law and Political Science at Yale University, back to the New York Historical Society. Before joining Yale Law School, Professor Amar clerked on the First Circuit for Judge Stephen Breyer. He is also a recipient of the Devane Mail, Yale's highest award for teaching excellence, and is the author of America's Constitution, which won the Silver Gavel Award from the American, American Bar Association. Professor Amar is the author of several books, including his latest, The Law of the Land, A Grand Tour of Our Constitutional Republic. We are also thrilled to welcome Richard Pildes, Sudler Family Professor of Constitutional Law at the New York University School of Law, a member of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences and the American Law Institute. He is, the, he is best known for his casebook, The Law of Democracy, Legal Structure of the Political Process, which effectively created a new field of legal scholarship on issues concerning democratic elections and institutions. In addition to the law of democracy, his work focuses on American political polarization, the Voting Rights Act, the structure of America's political processes, and the oversight of the US Supreme Court. Before we begin, I'd like to ask everyone to turn off cell phones, anything that makes a noise. And now, please join me in welcoming our speakers. Thank you.
lots to talk about. Um, we're going to take you from, this is the New York Historical Society. Of, um, we're going to take you from the founding to the future, not just to today and what's going on in Wisconsin, but what might even uh, happen in, in Cleveland and, and beyond. Um, but since we're the Historical Society, let's, let's um, uh, start at, at, at the beginning. Um, uh, and this will be conversational. Um, the further back we go, um, uh, the, the more I'm going to uh, spout off, and the closer we get to something relevant today, the, the, the more um, uh, Rick uh, is going to increasingly chime in. Um, but a few periods that we're going to talk about. The founding. Then flash forward a half century to the Reconstruction after the Civil War. Flash forward another half century to the Progressive Era with all sorts of democratic reforms that uh, Rick is going to tell you about. Flash forward yet another half century to the 1960s. We all lived through all sorts of things happening in the court and in the country relevant to the law of democracy and the rights to vote and elections. And then another half century. Yes, it's been that long since the 60s. Um, and, uh, and that takes <laughs> us to the present moment. So they were at the founding, I would argue, democratic, extraordinarily so. For that time, they put the Constitution to a vote. We, the people, the United States did ordain and establish the Constitution. And for its time, it was stunning. Um, uh, in New York, for example, no property qualifications, no religious qualifications, no race tests, um, uh, for no literacy tests. All adult free male citizens got to vote on whether they wanted to uh, say yes to this constitution. Yes, we do. So for the time, that was stunning. That what, those weren't the usual rules in New York, um, but there was a special set of rules in New York and a bunch of other places um, for this we do moment of the constitution. But when you read it, it doesn't say the right to vote. Today's version has that five times in, in the document, and, and there's a reason why, uh, I would claim, and, and the reason is, or several reasons, race and slavery, because if you have a right to vote, you know, how's that going to work when some states let free blacks vote and others don't? If you have um, uh, a right to vote, what about property qualifications? They exist in some places, but you, can you have a uniform set of property qualifications? across the states, given that land is valued at, at, at different rates. So um, they didn't have it at the founding. And we do have it um, today. Now, so far, agree or disagree with, with that you know, um, set of claims, Rick? What do you think? <laughs> well, I'm not going to disagree on your knowledge of uh, original constitutional history and, and the founding. I think that that's right. I think that, of course, when the national government was being created, there was tremendous anxiety about the new centralized government and a desire to uh, limit its control over politics. Mm -hmm. And it would have been extremely controversial, as you say, to resolve at the national level uh, questions about the organization of democracy in the state. So uh, who would have the right to participate? Who would have the right to vote, as you said? How election districts were to be drawn? Were there going to be election districts? Yes at all, or whether or would voting be what's called at large? So electing members of, you know, to Congress, should they be all elected on one slate from the state of Pennsylvania, or should Pennsylvania be divided up into a bunch of different districts? All of these kinds of issues were intentionally left to be resolved at the state level. Exactly so. So whether you can vote for Congress is determined by whether you're allowed under state law to vote for your, your state legislature. 
in effect, because you, you can't have, and, and even if you had tried to have some uniform rules, which should have run into the buzzsaws of, of race and slavery and property of qualifications, there's no bureaucratic capacity to enforce that. You know, there's, there, uh, the, fe the federal government doesn't, um, even in our lifetime, um, have a lot of capacity to monitor every precinct, every polling booth. Um, uh, uh, so, so a lot is left to local option. Okay. And, and can I just yeah. say, um, one of the amazing things about the system of democracy we have today, so for example, if you think about the Bush v. Gore disputed presidential election of 2000, remember people looking at those you know, ballots? The chats. So if you remember this, this were, these were people at the level of individual counties in Florida with the power to decide things like what constitutes a valid vote. And how can we have such an incredibly decentralized system for resolving the, the most uh, important office in the land, who has control of the presidency, the most important office in the world? It's because all of the changes that have been made over time, and there have been many, have been layered onto this initial constitutional architecture, which fundamentally has not changed. And therefore, all of the decentralization mm -hmm. that was built in at the beginning mm -hmm. is still reflected in our political practices, even with respect to something like the election of the president. Well, since you mentioned that, direct election of the president, you may have been taught, oh, they, they didn't embrace direct election of the president, the founding, because they didn't really believe at all in democracy. I think that's overstated. They put the Constitution to a vote. You've been taught, oh, it's a balance between big and small states. I think that's been overstated because that's what the House versus Senate is. But America isn't divided big against small states, actually. The big states tend to have nothing in common. The small, uh, California, uh, New York, Florida, Texas, the small states, nothing in common. America is divided. So that's not why we have the Electoral College, I'm going to argue. And I, you can see it in some of these, these pictures. America's divided, always has been, north against south and coast against the center. Try to figure out which two dates these are. We'll come back to them. But they're actually two different electoral college maps, and they're not actually the same year. Or um, America, this is, these are the elections of 1796, 1800. America's divided north against south. That's Jefferson against Adams, the southerner against the northerner twice, swing states called Ohio, but then that, back then it was called New York, um, uh, which was a slave state at the time, Aaron Burr. Um, and it, so north against south, um, uh, coast against the center, but also um, uh, the, uh, um, the cities against the hinterland, basically. That's what it looks like today. Um, uh, it's a pretty red country uh, when you look at the land. Um, okay, so why did they have the Electoral College? I'll tell you in one word why I actually think, and we'll get Rick um, uh, back into the conversation here. If James Carville were here, he'd say, it's slavery, stupid. <laughs> because if you have direct election, the South will lose every time because it can't count its slaves at all. Um, and but if you have an electoral college, you can count slavery with a discount, three-fifths. The number of seats you have in the House of Representatives, which reflects slaves, is also going to be reflected in electoral college. North against South, who's the big winner for 32 of the first 36 years? It's a slave-holding, plantation-owning Virginian. Um, and um, Pennsylvania in 1800 has more free people than Virginia, way more voters than Virginia, and way fewer electoral votes than Virginia. Uh, and you take away those extra votes because of slavery that Thomas Jefferson is getting both times, you take them away in 1800, 
John Adams wins that election too. John Adams lost in part because the votes from the southern states are being inflated by the presence of, of slavery. And here's one other thing, and this is where I want Rick to jump in yet again. The framers at the beginning weren't thinking about political parties. They weren't imagining you'd have two parties. Washington is a man above party. Um, he has Hamilton on his right and Jefferson on his left, but, but every single elector votes for him twice. Um, but, um, and, and here's how you can see that. In the original electoral college, the person who comes in second for the presidency is automatically the vice president. So when Adams beats Jefferson that first time around in 1796, Jefferson comes in second, and he's the vice president. And then they begin to emerge as heads of these competing factions, these sort of competing parties. And you have the sitting, in the rematch, you have the sitting president running against the sitting vice president. Uh, and that's because they weren't quite thinking initially about how parties would emerge. Think about just, you know, very bluntly, the assassination incentives. That, 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 that the very in, un, inst, uh, unstable, precarious situation where a person who's a heartbeat away from all executive power thinks that the guy who has it is completely wrong on everything. That's, that is not a great system. And the Constitution is going to get amended after that second that rematch, the Jefferson um, uh, Adams rematch with Aaron Burr coming in. His job is to deliver New York, and, and he does, um, for the Jefferson party. The Constitution is going to get amended, the 12th Amendment, so that you can vote separately for the president and the vice president. It's going to create the possibility, not yet fully implemented, but the possibility of having parties that run slates. You know, um, our party proposes X for president and his running mate, you know, Y for, for vice president. That's going to be made possible, the more modern system, by the 12th Amendment. So I think the 12th Amendment at least anticipates the possibility of parties, but Rick might have a different view. Well, I think this is probably the biggest area in terms of how democracies actually function when they're up and running that the framers didn't anticipate. They did not have a modern enough sensibility of how democracy would actually have to get organized and structured and channeled. And so not only did they not anticipate the emergence of political parties, which have huge ramifications for the way the system of governance and elections and politics actually works. Today. But to, well, once parties come into being. Um, but the Constitution was explicitly written uh, with the hope that it would forestall the rise of political parties. So if you know the famous Federalist Number 10, when Madison writes about the problem of faction and the hope that this system was being designed with all of these checks and balances and diffusion of political power across the national government, the state government, Congress, the presidency, bicameral legislature, the hope was that this structure would preclude the rise of factions or political parties. And what was thought to be so bad about parties, um, and it's so interesting how much you hear the resonance of these concerns um, in modern disdain for political parties, parties were thought to be uh, sectarian. They were thought to be partisan, partial. 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 Part. They would not be organized with an aim towards the general good or the common good. Uh, and the strongest expression of this sensibility, this anti-party sensibility, which was very much part of the way uh, democracy in these early periods of its development uh, was thought about, 
was that in the post-French Revolution French constitutions, it was actually made a crime to be a member of a political party. And why? If you know your Rousseau, Rousseau talks about the general will, you know, democracy or republican government, as they would say, was about the realization and the expression of the general will. Parties were thought to be antithetical to the realization of the general will. And so the Constitution was not only designed in a way that didn't foresee the necessity of parties, but specifically designed to preclude their rise. Well, of course, in any modern political system over any large scale, political parties turn out to be absolutely crucial intermediary vehicles for organizing citizens to participate, for organizing candidates to run, for organizing government, for giving some coherence to the system. And you know, today, we would see as one of the central attributes of what makes a system a democratic system that it's a multi-party democracy, that it allows for political competition through political parties. But once political parties actually arise and get accepted and become part of the, fix, the fixture of American democracy, which doesn't really happen until the 1830s or the 1840s, uh, and um, not until that point does it become accepted that it's okay to have competing parties pushing for power, that it's actually a normal way for the system to work. A key figure here is New York's own Martin Van Buren. Van, Martin Van Buren is one of the great political theorists, I think, and of American democracy, and even better practitioners of American democracy. And he kind of invented the modern political party, was the Democratic Party uh, in that uh, era. But, but in any event, once you uh, have a world in which parties are so central, you can see all sorts of ways that it changes the operation of the system. So let me give you an example that will be obvious to you right away, which is the, the way the president relates to the Congress um, is so much through the dynamics of partisan political competition or affiliation if they're of the same party. So the way our separated power system works is very, very much dependent, of course, as we know, on whether the same party controls the presidency and the Senate and the House, or whether government is divided. Okay, now, when the system was designed, as you well know, the Madisonian idea was that these institutions would check each other because senators would have an interest in preserving the powers of the Senate, and the House members would have an interest in preserving the powers of the House. And they would stand for these kind of institutional interests. But once there are very powerful party ties across these branches, the way the system works is not the Madisonian vision of these institutions checking in each other. It's a question of what's the political party dynamic. And that's your theory, um, along with Darrell Levinson and others, of, um, uh, in effect, in the formal separation of powers, legislature versus executive, is really complicated and, and, and transformed by, by um, Republicans versus Democrats right, rather than uh, executives versus legislatures. The way, the way these institutions work is we sort of have fundamentally two different systems. In periods in which we have the same political party in control Unified of government. The three, the three institutions. House, Senate, presidency. Right. Um, there's going to be one way the system works. You'll probably have very little checking, actually, of the president, because same party members of Congress are not going to hold aggressive hearings. Great Society, Obamacare, New Deal. 
Um, now, in divided government, the system can become incredibly paralyzed. And especially when the political parties become as hyper-polarized as they have over the last, starting 30 years ago or so, and increasing in this relentless way, year after year after year, ever, you know, to the point we're at today, you get a system that is largely paralyzed. Nixon impeachment, Clinton impeachment, uh, no hearings <laughs> for Garland. No, you know, fewer acts of legislation than in prior periods of history, incredible gridlock, uh, government can't get, people can't get appointed. So we're getting already to the present, but just, I wanna go back just one more time and show you um, the beginnings of, of this party system that, that Rick has identified. You see it a little bit, again, with Jefferson, versus Madison, but then it kind of recedes, an era of good feeling. Everyone votes for Monroe, um, who hands off power to John Quincy Adams, so we're all getting along. Um, and then, but, but new divisions reemerge, the Jacksonians against the anti-Jacksonians. So here's my point. My claim is slavery was key. It was driving things. The presidency was designed to make, to, to, be, to, to give the South um, uh, actually an inside track for 32 of the first 36 years, eight of the first, um, um, uh, uh, um, I mean, so, uh, uh, nine presidential elections, it's a slave-holding Virginian who wins, okay? And until Lincoln, you don't really have any anti-slavery presidents who, as president, say, slavery is a wrong, we should eventually get rid of it. John Quincy Adams is going to say that when he's no longer president, and he only has to appeal to a Massachusetts base. He becomes old man eloquent. Um, his vice president is John C. Calhoun from South Carolina. His dad, oh, yeah, mm, yeah, and his dad, John Adams, runs with another South Carolina guy, okay? And yeah, so here's, um, uh, uh, but then Abe Lincoln gets elected, the country um, uh, goes through the Civil War. And here's what I want to tell you now about the next, I told you we jumped a half century, the Civil War transformation. I want to um, uh, describe it, the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments, in partisan terms, because the parties here are playing a huge role in generating the amendments. Okay, here's what the Republican Party platform is in 1860. Read our lips, no new slavery. Okay, no slavery in the West, but we're not going to mess where, the, where it is. But by 1864, the Civil War is broken out. They are going to be much more emphatic. We propose to get rid of slavery where it exists. We're going to take the Emancipation Proclamation and constitutionalize it, expand it. It's going to apply even in the North, Kentucky, Missouri, Delaware, um, um, uh, um, uh, um, um, uh, uh, um, uh, uh, Maryland, uh, slave states in, in, in the North. And so their platform in 1864, the Republican platform is we are for a constitutional amendment to get rid of slavery. And the Democrats say the union as it was. And there's an election and Lincoln wins and that's what that movie is all about. Spielberg and in the lame duck, Lincoln's arm twisting a handful of Democrats who are, who are persuadable that slash bribable, um, uh, uh, he's got, well, he's got all sorts of offices to hand out. They've been tossed out of, of power and he can maybe help them land on their feet or move into his party, patronage, all sorts of stuff. So the 13th Amendment is organized by an, a partisan election. And then there's this moment, I, I, this is C-SPAN, so I'll just call it the, you know, oh crap moment. Um, when the, and this is what generates the 14th Amendment. They realize, oh my goodness. We thought, okay, job done. End of slavery, amazing, just amazing. Wait a minute, wait a minute. When you end slavery, 
Now, three-fifths, no more slavery. It becomes five-fifths, and all these black folk in the South are going to count, not at a discount, but one for one, five-fifths, even though they're not being allowed to vote in the South. The, the South is going to come back in the Union with more seats than it had before. Um, and, and so this generates the need for another constitutional amendment, that's Section 2 of the 14th Amendment, that you haven't heard so much about. And as long as we're doing it, we, be, we better do some other stuff, too. Every single Republican in Congress except one person votes for the 14th Amendment. Every single Democrat in Congress votes against it. It's a totally partisan thing, every bit as much as, say, Obamacare. Um, and then the 15th Amendment is also very partisan because the 14th Amendment, one part of the deal is the South can come back if they let blacks vote. But the 14th Amendment doesn't quite require blacks to vote everywhere. Um, and Ulysses Grant loses, actually, the white vote. And so he, they realized the Republican Party, we better do some more stuff. We're going to need an amendment that brings the black vote to the North. That's also a partisan thing. Republicans are for it. Democrats are against it. So parties are built now into the very, and, and permanent parties, not temporary Federalists, Anti-Federalists, we're for it, we're against it. But permanent institutional parties have played a massive role in the constitutional transformation with the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments, they've been baked into the amendment cake, at least for these amendments. What, where did I go wrong there? You know, I How wish you would talk about other parts of your work because there'd be many opportunities to respond <laughs> to that question. But on, on that description, um, I'm not uh, sure there's anything that I think is wrong. I think that um, the only thing that's wrong is that Steven Spielberg focused his movie on the wrong amendment, in my view. So the, as you say, the culmination of the Civil War was the 13th, 14th, and then ultimately the 15th Amendment. Yeah, tell them what, I, I went too fast. Uh, yeah. Tell them what, so, what those amendments are. So the 13th Amendment and, and slavery. The 14th Amendment uh, uh, makes clear that anyone born in the United States is a citizen of the United States and of the state in which they reside. So black people are citizens, Dred Scott's overruled. It also uh, establishes that no state can deny equal protection of the laws to any person. Racial equality. Um, it has this very important uh, but not well uh, recognized uh, Section 2 provision that Akhil referred to, which we can talk about more. But in any event, that's the 14th and Amendment. And Section 2 is, says if you disfranchise folks, you lose seats in the House and the Electoral College, although unfortunately it, ha it wasn't quite fully enforced. Um, but you're going to pay a penalty if you start disfranchising but people. But the 14th Amendment is fundamentally about ensuring equality and protecting citizenship. But it's not until the 15th Amendment that you get to what was the most controversial piece of Reconstruction, which is the question of whether the Constitution would protect the right to vote uh, in a racially non-discriminatory way. The thing that was finessed at the founding because that was going to be a deal breaker. Right. And so at the, 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 the part of the Reconstruction process that took the most political power to establish and took the longest to establish was the 15th Amendment, protecting against racially discriminatory voting practices. No race discrimination in voting. Now, that amendment had significant effects uh, for, uh, we can argue about the, how to date this, um, but for, uh, let's say, till the, I think till the 1890s, basically. And then that amendment essentially became a dead letter and what happened is you had the massive disenfranchisement uh, of blacks in the South and many poor whites, about a third of the white electorate as well, 
uh, through the devices that you've heard of, grandfather clauses, literacy tests, poll taxes, good moral uh, standing clauses, uh, reading and understanding provisions of the Constitution as a test of voting. Uh, and so it was not until... And they're disfranchising folks, but not actually paying the penalty they're supposed to pay for, for fewer seats, just because that Section 2 ends up not getting... And speaking of 1890, those are the, that, that top map there, that's actually an electoral college map from the 1890s, and that's Lincoln's coalition. Okay, what's this one on the bottom? That's today, but what's the change? So we're still divided, basically, same way. What's the change? There are a few states that have flipped. Were you able to figure out what the change is? The blue guys are the Democrats in the bottom one. The tall, skinny constitutional lawyer from Illinois, Abraham Lincoln's you know, coalition, that's, that's Barack Obama and the Democrats. And the so-called, the nominal party of Lincoln has become the party of the Confederacy. But America still, in some ways, you know, there are these basic divisions, north against south, coast against the center, um, cities against the hinterland. So, so we are still living through some of the, you know, the so, so, so one thing. Take us into the 20th century. Well, okay, so one thing that I think um, people frequently don't remember about the effects of disenfranchisement is that, and, and also a little bit about what drove disenfranchisement, is that it was not purely about race issues. It was not a cultural uh, expression alone of you know, white supremacy, racial ideology. It was a part of partisan power political dynamics. And what disenfranchisement was designed to do was to destroy coalitions that were very significant in these southern states up until the 1890s between blacks who were now black men who were now able to vote and for example, in the 1888 presidential election, two-thirds of adult black men are voting. Uh, and you got coalitions between white populists and African-American men, vote, male voters, uh, that were very significant forces in partisan politics. Uh, and so there were deep conflicts between the sort of former plantation, much more conservative, oligarchic, landholding, elite in the South and poor kind of hard scrabble white farmers. And what disenfranchisement did is destroy that alternative to the control of Southern politics by the more conservative white elite. And as a result of that very, very successful set of disenfranchising techniques, the American South became a one-party democratic monopoly from sometime in the early 20th century all the way until the 1965 Voting Rights the Act. The so-called Solid South. The, it's a monopoly. There is no meaningful Republican Party in the South throughout most of the 20th century. And that has huge ramifications for national politics and the way the political parties are organized nationally. Uh, and it has a, we have a very different kind of political system through that whole period of time uh, because you have just one party in the South. Uh, and the 1965 Voting Rights Act, by getting rid of all of these barriers to political participation, you know, primarily for African Americans, but also poor whites who were disenfranchised by some of these techniques, like poll taxes that had to be paid, begins the process of bringing into politics in the South 
all of these much more liberal forces. And the effects of this take a number of decades to work through the system. Um, but what you have is the beginning of the uh, bringing to bear a political pressure from these more liberal forces. Uh, eventually, you're going to get the emergence of a Democratic Party, uh, of a more liberal segment of the Democratic Party in the South. The more conservative whites of the South split off into a Republican Party that now starts to rise. And it's not until the 1990s, believe it or not, that you get roughly equal two-party political competition in the South with a, where the South begins to look, in terms of partisan politics, a lot more like the rest of the country in the sense that there are now two strong, relatively equal political parties. Now, over the next you know, 20 years or so, the South becomes increasingly Republican. Um, but the disenfranchisement, because the 15th Amendment was a dead letter for so long, has all of these profound ramifications on how political parties get organized and therefore how American politics functions. Okay, I'm gonna ask you a question about just that. He's gonna tell us about parties and, and primaries and their origin, but just in a nutshell, how did you get this flip? Here's a version of what Rick just said. Because they weren't enforcing, they promised black people equal voting in the 15th Amendment. That, not they, we, we the people, that's the 15th Amendment. We promised that and it worked for a while and then we stopped doing it. And, there, and no penalty is being paid by these jurisdictions that are depriving people, disfranchising um, folks, and, and the courts are not enforcing Voting Rights Act, uh, voting, rights, um, um, uh, 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 voting rights under the Constitution. And in the 1960s, Lyndon Johnson, um, a Democrat, pushes through the Voting Rights Act of 1965, and the Supreme Court starts to weigh in also, um, and we the people are doing some amendments um, at the same time, 18-year-old vote is happening in this era, and there, there's some other constitutional amendments. But especially the Voting Rights Act, more than the constitutional amendments, he just told you is transformative. It resulted in a fundamental realignment in four steps. Just to remember, we start out with the Conservative Party, the Southern uh, being the, the Democrats uh, in the South are the cons are conservative base. Um, they oppose Lincoln, and, and it's a solid South. And, and so in 1960, there are Democrats who were liberal and Democrats who were very conservative, and they're both in the same party. And they're liberal Republicans and conservative Republicans, and it's all mixed up. And in 1965, just in a nutshell, and then I'm going to have him tell you more about the history of parties in the 20th century, um, and primaries in particular. 1965, Lyndon Johnson's party pushes through a Voting Rights Act that says we're going to let black people vote in the South. Very few black people were voting in, in many Southern jurisdictions. Two, three, five percent in Mississippi, uh, for example. Voting Rights pass, uh, Act passes. Blacks in droves join Lyndon Johnson's party, the Democrat party. White conservatives in the South who had been Democrats become Republicans. They had begun to do that in 1948, the Dixiecrats, Strom Thurmond, but all these conservative Southern Democrats, whites, become Republicans. They push the Republican Party hard to the right. The Democrats are becoming more liberal party. A lot of these blacks are moving in. The conservative Southern Republican whites push out of the party the liberal Northeastern 
um, uh, Republicans, the so-called Rockefeller Republicans, the Lincoln Chaffees and, uh, and the Jim Jeffords and the Arlen Specters on the Supreme Court, even uh, John Paul Stevens or David Souter or Harry Blackman, these northern, Gerald Ford, northern liberal Republican, Rockefeller Republican types are getting pushed out of the party. Um, so the Republican Party is moving hard to the right and becoming a Confederate party. And the Democrat Party is moving to the left, all uh, uh, African Americans joining it. And you now live in a world which is not 1960, in which the most conservative Democrat in Congress, say Joe Manchin or something, is still to the left of the most liberal Republican, you know, Snow or some, some, uh, someone from um, uh, Rob Portman or whoever, you know, it would, it would, there are not so many uh, left anymore. That's this massive realignment um, in which now we have ideological parties. We had them in, in the 1850s and 60s, but for a lot of the 20th century, we didn't. But now I want you to go back and tell them the story of primaries, because they're interested in primaries. For, I don't know why, primaries. but they are. <laughs> uh, are the returns in from uh, Wisconsin yet? I assume they're not. I'm, I'm sure they're not. Um, so let me say one word about what you just uh, mentioned, and, and then I'll talk about political primaries and how to understand our current moment um, in, in this election. Um, so. Uh, the story we just told you about the dynamics of the reorganization of the parties with the you know, catalyst of the Voting Rights Act in 1965 explains, in my mind, why the political polarization that we have is um, not a sort of passing you know, moment. Um, it's not a product of particular individual political personalities. It's a reflection of the end of this very artificial world of a one-party political system in the South uh, that led to this political system nationally where you, the parties were all mixed up in various ways. Uh, liberal Democrats, conservative Democrats, liberal Republicans, conservative Republicans. When you see the data on this, you can see over 30 years or so, the, as I say, the, the increases in polarization between the parties that move in a pretty linear fashion. One element of what some political scientists call the big sort. Right, and- Not the big short, Michael Lewis, but the big sort. But the parties are much a more- Sorting out of the parties. The parties are much more ideologically coherent. Uh, they're much more ideologically differentiated from each other. Uh, voters understand the parties and what they stand for much better than in eras in which the parties were very kind of weak tea. Um, they know what it means to vote for a Republican or to vote for a Democrat. Um, and to the extent people have this nostalgia for the statesmen of the past from the 70s or the 60s or the 50s or whatever era within memory uh, you might think about, those figures were able to exist because the party system was so fluid and not polarized in the way it now is. The Everett Dirksons, the Howard Bakers, yes, whatever. Those, whoever you extol uh, as the model of the statesman we need more of. And, and so I think this is a way of understanding that the polarization we have, it might not always be quite as intense or quite as ugly or you know, incivil, but fundamentally, I think political polarization uh, is making the system, a, is, is more of a normal state of affairs uh, for the system. 
And it's going to put tremendous pressure on how our institutions can function given the separated power system that we have uh, and how difficult it is to generate concerted action in the system. Now, to talk about political primaries some and, and kind of how did we get to where we are at the moment in this uh, election, it, it does tie into what we've been talking about with the role of political parties in democracy. Um, and part of the question that you have to think about is um, how do you think about parties? And are they good things in the democratic system? And should they have a significant role, for example, in helping to choose the nominees of the parties? Uh, as opposed to the system that we have gravitated to, uh, actually much more recently than you may realize, uh, in which the parties are actually, they actually have almost no control over who becomes their nominees. Uh, and so obviously- By parties, you mean the establishments, the infrastructure? I mean the, the established party leadership. I don't mean the party leadership at the national level or that alone. I mean the party you know, committee chair people in the states, the people who are invested in the party and work for the party over many decades. Um, we now have a system, which we've had only since the 1970s, uh, in which the, the primaries, through the voting process, almost completely determine who the candidates of the parties are. Uh, and so you're able to have a figure like Donald Trump on the Republican side, uh, who many Republican party figures uh, who have been active in the party for decades uh, don't view as a, a, a Republican, um, but somebody who's managed to mobilize popular support through the primaries uh, running under the label of the Republican Party, with the party leadership having very little capacity to stop that. And actually on the Democratic side, we're not as far from that as you might think, because Bernie Sanders is of course not a Democrat. You know, he's an independent. Um, he's not raising any money for the Democratic Party. Uh, he's running as an insurgent, uh, but he understands that the only way to try to be effective as an insurgent is to be able to run under the party label, get into the debates, get the attention that comes from that. Ralph Nader had a piece recently praising Bernie Sanders for doing the right thing as an outsider insurgent that Ralph Nader realized The guy who elected George Bush president, uh, just, just so you remember, um, any of you who are feeling the burn, the guy who elected um, George Bush. But, but, so, so how, but here's so what I learned it, from you, uh, yes, Rick. Yes. Hang on, just because I promised them we would tell them also about the early 19-teens, and I yes. learned something amazing uh, from you very recently. I thought all this primary stuff was very new, that you know, it wasn't around, it wasn't a big deal when Jack Kennedy ran in 1960, but you actually have evidence that primaries actually kind of have ebbed and flowed and they were actually rather important earlier in the 20th century than I had realized. Right. And I, I so promised them something on the progressive I'm era. I'm happy to talk about the progressive era, um, which is what we're returning to in some ways with the modern primary structure for choosing presidential, presidential nominees. So uh, let's, starting the story in the early part of the 20th century, uh, when we began to first have primaries playing any role in the presidential process, it really began in 1912 when Teddy Roosevelt wanted to challenge President Taft uh, as the nominee of the Republican Party. Now, Taft was the sitting president. He controlled the party apparatus. Uh, and the progressives were also out there pushing for primary elections as a general matter, including for the presidency, because they hated the political parties. They thought they were corrupt, 
machine politics. I'm shocked. They talked about trying to end what they called the tyranny of the parties. They believed in the purity of the people. If the people could just vote directly, everything would be wonderful in American democracy. Um, and so Teddy Roosevelt, who didn't actually believe in primaries in principle, he was a party man, um, he started pushing hard for primaries because he knew that was the only way he could go outside the party apparatus. Because he's an insurgent. Because he's an insurgent at that point. So in 1912, in that election, we ended up with something like 14 states having primaries. And for about six years, 1914 to 1920, primary elections were used to play a role, not the determinative role, but they were playing a role in selecting the party nominees. Now, from 1920 until 1970 or so, we had a different system. There was a rejection of the primaries as playing too significant a role. A number of states repealed their primary laws. And we had what was called a mixed system for choosing presidential nominees. And it was kind of an incoherent mix of two different visions of how democracy should choose presidential nominees. But you might think it worked you know, pretty well. Um, and the way it worked was that there were a certain number of primary elections, um, but only a certain percentage of the delegates to the conventions were determined by the primary elections. And the, the dominant force in choosing the candidates still was in the party organizations at the conventions. So the primary part, part of the process allowed outsiders to challenge the party orthodoxy to some extent uh, to try to prove that they were actually credible candidates uh, to challenge uh, the party hierarchy and the establishment. But it was all within a framework in which it was understood that the party officials would still have the dominant voice at these conventions. And so that kept these candidates you know, looking with one eye towards also making sure they weren't too far uh, away from what was a, a acceptable within the party framework. And so candidates would have a mix of strategies. Some people would run more as outsiders, trying to go the primary route. Some people would run more as insiders and try to just focus on the party leadership. So in 1960, for example, John F. Kennedy and Lyndon Johnson. Uh, Johnson is the consummate insider at this point. Uh, and he decides to try to become president primarily by working through the party leadership and not running in the primaries. Kennedy, because he's a Catholic, because he's less well-known, um, there's a lot of anxiety within the party about whether voters will vote for a Catholic. He has to go out and show that he can be electable in a state like West Virginia, which is the famous place where he overcame very the, Protestant state, very Protestant state. And when he made his famous speech about separation of religion and state. Um, but the system was this mixed system that was not created in one moment of careful thought by any planner, but reflected both some role for popular participation and some role for the party figures uh, who, after all, knew these candidates actually watched them in government or watched them in office in one form or another uh, and can make judgments about uh, who's going to be able to hold coalitions in the party together uh, and who's going to be electable. Now, that broke down after the Democratic Convention of 1968. So 
A lot of stuff broke down. And a lot of stuff broke down around in that era and around that Democratic convention. So Hubert Humphrey becomes the Democratic nominee in 68. He has not run in any primary. Uh, and he defeats people like Eugene McCarthy and others who had run in the primaries. Uh, and of course, there's a million things going on, civil rights, the Vietnam War, um, but there's a- Bobby so, Kennedy's assassination. Martin Luther King's assassination. Uh, but there's a tremendous reaction against that convention, especially after Humphrey loses the election. Uh, and the Democratic Party decides it's got to revisit the rules for how nominees are chosen. With, by the way, and then we're going to take questions in just a couple of minutes, but, but as, again, part of this transition with um, a conservative Southern Democrat breaking away from the Democrat Party and the Democrat coalition in that 68 election, George Wallace, and complicating things in all sorts right. of ways. So the Democratic coalition that had held together a Lyndon Johnson from the South and a Jack Kennedy from the North is breaking up before our very eyes in 1968. Um, because remember, the Democrat Party for a long time had a solid South that, that Franklin Roosevelt could count on. Who's his running mate? First time around, a Texan cactus, cactus Jack John Nance Garner from South Texas. So, so that was part of the Democrat Party base, and it's all cracking up before our eyes in 68. So the Democratic Party, and they're really the leadership on this, the Republican so Party start eventually to, Start comes to come along. to the microphones. Um, uh, so there's this famous commission called the McGovern-Fraser Commission, which is said to look, look into the rules and figure out you know, how to make the, the party more legitimate, how to open it up some. And they propose a series of reforms to do things like open up the caucus system primarily. But what happens is when these reforms get proposed, the way the states respond to these proposals is to say, the easiest thing to do is just shift to primary yeah. elections. And so there's a massive shift to the use of primary elections that occurs by 1976, and 75% or so of the delegates begin to be selected completely by primary elections. Okay, now when this system went into effect and was in the early 70s, these are two very famous political scientists, Nelson Polsby and Aaron Waldofsky, and lots of other people said similar sorts of things. And this had always been an ongoing anxiety about the method to choose the president going back to the 19th century, they said, if you go to this purely populist system in which the party figures don't have any meaningful say in the candidates, then there is a tremendous risk that we will get more personality-based candidates, uh, lead to the appearance of extremist candidates and demagogues, unconstrained by allegiance to any permanent party organization, we have little to lose by stirring up mass hatreds, making absurd promises in the primary election process. And you guys are laughing as if you think that's happening now, but I think they, <laughs> they got it completely wrong. And then we're going to take questions, because so, they are predicting that we're going to have uh, candidates who would have little to lose by stirring up mass hatreds or making absurd promises. But I think maybe we're getting someone um, who has little to lose by stirring up mass hatreds and making absurd promises. So, but, 
with that, I'm gonna, we, we gotta get Pete, some folks involved, so we're gonna get you. Uh, so th um, here's what I'd like you to do. Ask a quick, well, not a comment, but one question. Make it quick and we'll get through lots. Aaron. Uh, could the 14th Amendment second clause be used as a legal tool to challenge voter ID laws? No. Okay. Uh, yes. <laughs> um, so section two of the 14th Amendment is this really interesting thing. The mo one of the most sustained discussions about it just happened yesterday in the Supreme Court. Um, don't rule it out. The court hasn't used it as a big basis before. It's possible. Rick is right. They haven't done anything like that before. Um, but 15 years ago, they hadn't used the Second Amendment before. You know, 30 years ago, they hadn't relied on the Tenth Amendment before. So, so never say never about a constitutional clause. That side. How, how would things have been different if our representation was not geographical? Oh. European style. Um, well, uh, yeah, I'm wondering what you're imagining precisely is the alternative because there, there are lots of alternative forms. So let me, let me try to answer the question this way initially. So one of the things that's unique about the United States uh, is that we have a two-party system. You look at Western European democracies, long-established democracies there, and most of them, with the exception of England, have multi-party democracies. Uh, and uh, people have written about, you know, why is this? Does this reflect the fact that the United States has a less ideological, more centrist kind of political culture? I think the answer is clearly no. If you study institutions, as both of us do, you realize that uh, the system we use, as does England, we inherited from England, it's called first past the post, uh, with individual election districts. Single-member districts. Has, you know, encourages... Huge has very strong incentives that lead to two-party systems. A political created. science law sometimes referred to as Duverger's law. If you have single-member districts, you may, under certain conditions, tend to get two parties in long-term right. equilibrium. If, if we went to a proportional representation system for electing members of Congress, I mean, depending on how the president was chosen, but if we chose him as a prime minister, like in a parliamentary system, um, I have no doubt we would immediately have four or five significant parties in the United States. The Republican Party would certainly splinter. It may be doing that in any event right now. The Democratic Party would splinter off. We'd have a, a, something like a Green Party. So the, the institutional structures through which elections are organized creates tremendous incentives to organize and channel politics in one direction or another. We tend to take for granted, you know, as natural the kind of politics we have without being aware of the institutional framework and the legal framework that makes that kind of politics much more likely than certain alternative forms of politics. As these parties in the last 20 years have become more intractable and, and less tolerant of the opposition, hasn't the American public been the loser in this because their interests appear to fall by the wayside and party interests appear to be the most prominent issue? So um, one thing that political scientists will tell us about the, the benefits of the current system, uh, which you may not kind of think about, is um, that voters now do understand much better what they're voting for um, in a world in which the parties have very clear labels and they mean very different things. So, most voters have lots of trouble sorting through all the information about 
the individual member of Congress and the individual senator, and you know, with a lot of presidential candidates, differences among presidential candidates, and the party label is the single most important informational tool for the sort of median voter, for lots and lots and lots of voters. Okay, so a benefit of clarity like this is people turn out because they perceive a lot to be at stake in the choice and our turnout rates in presidential elections actually have been going up despite a lot of things that you might read. Um, so that's a benefit. Now, there's a tremendous set of costs, which is, is it gonna make the system ungovernable? Because the institutional design is to separate these institutions, but they somehow have to be united to get anything done. Um, does it make the system less responsive to what the median person, whatever that means exactly, you know, prefers? Um, you know, if you look at studies that ask uh, of the 10 most important issues of the day as identified by various public opinion metrics, uh, to what extent is there legislation addressing those issues, we're at a very low period, not surprisingly, in terms of those metrics. I mean, one of the things that I think is inevitable with the kind of paralysis of the legislative process that comes from this configuration of parties is you are, under presidents of both parties, going to get more unilateral executive action. You're going to have a lot more power in the administrative agencies. And you're going to have a lot more power in the courts, which is part of why the struggle over who gets confirmed to the courts is going to be all the more intense. So yes, I think it's a very big problem. Can this system be able to function through the legislative process that was imagined to be the central driver of you know, legitimate democratic politics in a world of such hyper-polarized political parties? We don't have lots of time left, but we want to get in as many questions as we can. Just one um, sentence on, on that question before we take the next question. Um, there are some political scientists who think that actually um, uh, there's what's called asymmetric polarization. Uh, the Republican Party has moved further to the right than the Democrat Party has moved to the left. Um, and so um, there actually, it may not be some people say, Norm Ornstein, for example, a very distinguished political science, scientist, a problem with the two-party system. There may be a problem with one half of one of our parties, and you can guess which one that is. Uh, and which half that is, Donald Trump. My question sort of piggies, uh, piggybacks on the back of that. Uh, as American politics become more polarized, do you think there is a way to sort of uh, retract from that? And if so, what steps can be taken? And we as... Um, voters, how can we sort of help the process? So this goes back to the discussion about the political primaries and how the process has changed over time. So part of the story I was telling you there implicitly is a story, and as this quote indicates, it's a story about um, perhaps the desirability of accepting a certain kind of role for the political parties that is in some tension with the highly populist way of thinking about democracy that has become so dominant in our politics over the last 30 or 40 years. So for example, if we were still in that world of mixed methods of choosing presidential nominees, uh, if the party figures had a much larger role than the almost non-existent role they have today, um, would you get candidates 
who reflected more of a balance between the various coalitions and factions within the parties? Uh, would the parties play a bit of a moderating role in the choice of who the candidates are, even in a polarized world? But we have tremendous fragmentation and diffusion of power away from the political parties today. So we have, through the campaign finance system, created a world in which all these super PACs and all these outside groups that are not the political parties uh, have the right to raise unlimited amounts of money while the political parties can't do the same thing. And part of what that means is that the reforms, uh, like the McCain-Feingold law, which banned a lot of this money from coming into the political parties, had the effect of sending that money to all of these outside groups. Does that make our system better? Or would it be a better world in which, if we have to accept that it's you know, inevitable that money is gonna be playing a significant role in the electoral process, is it better to have that money channeled through the political parties and through the candidates who are accountable for the ads they run, accountable for the positions they take, rather than have all of these outside groups which take power away from the parties playing such a big role? So, to unify what I'm trying to say here is, we need to be thinking about political parties in American democracy and whether uh, our disdain for them, our contempt for them, uh, our desire to empower the individual citizen, um, you know, whether, whether this is really uh, likely to create the best functioning democratic system, the best system of governance, the best system of choosing candidates and nominees, uh, or whether, whether we need to you know, think harder about those questions. Well, Akhil Ridamar and Richard Pildes, thank you so much for this program. Thank you. And I just want to remind you that Akhil Ridamar will be signing books this evening. Um, he will also be back with us on Thursday, April 28th for another great program from John Jay to the Roberts Court. So stay for the book signing, and we look forward to seeing you all again. Thank you very much. <laughs>